0: Hello, fantasy and fairy tale fans, and welcome to Brandy June's Goldspun. I'm Bridget McFadden, and this is Camcat Unwrapped. I'll be introducing you to every episode of Brandy June's Rumpel Steelskin retelling, Goldspun. Having read this book, I can tell you there are plenty of twists that turn the original fairy tale on its head. Goldspun is all about the Miller's Daughter. In the original fairy tale, the Miller's Daughter doesn't even have a name, so June gives her a story and a name, Noor. Noor is a con artist, and Pell is a mysterious fairy. When Noor helps Pell in the forest, he gives her a golden thread that can summon him for a favor. Instead, Noor uses the thread to trick villagers into thinking she can spin straw into gold. And the ploy works! Well, at least until she attracts the attention of Prince Casper, who challenges her to spin a roomful of straw into gold. But if Nora can't spin gold, she can always spin lies.
1: CamCat Publishing presents Gold Spun by Brandy June Narrated by Kathleen McInerney In a certain kingdom once lived a poor miller who had a very beautiful daughter. She was moreover exceedingly shrewd and clever and the miller was so vain and proud of her that he one day told the king of the land that his daughter could spin gold out of straw. Grimm's Goblins, 1876, by Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm, translated by Edgar Taylor. Prologue. Prince Caspar leaned against the ornately carved marble railing of the balcony as he finished the last of his coffee. In his five years as a royal hostage, he had developed a taste for the very sweet cinnamon coffee so common in Faradisia, but always wondered if he would still enjoy the strong, bitter tea of Renales when he was finally given leave to return home, if he was ever allowed home. It had been weeks since his brother, King Christopher, sent him a letter. When Caspar first arrived in Faradisia, his brother had written almost every day, praising Caspar's courage and keeping him updated with news of home. Casper knew his brother was occupied with ruling Renalis, aware that his focus was now directed at keeping their country safe from the dangerous Fey. Still, he could not help the feeling that he had been sacrificed and forgotten. Casper stared at the vast landscape of Pharadesia, long rows of citrus trees and wide stretches of grassland that were only green during the few weeks of rain. The sole movement in the Serene Valley was a lone man on horseback galloping toward the palazzo. As he neared, Casper could make out the official orange and white garb of a royal messenger. Casper idly wondered what news the messenger was bringing, though he knew King Jovian would never share sensitive information with Casper. The Faradisian king treated Casper with great courtesy, but never forgot that Casper's first loyalty. Was to his home country straining his eyes toward the horizon casper imagined that he could see all the way to rinalis it was foolish he knew but it was his habit since he came to king jovian's Palazzo. he had been 14 when he first arrived as an honored guest not wanting to shame his brother or his country casper only allowed himself to cry in the very early hours of the morning long before even the servants would come to wake him. He would creep out on his balcony and stare to the north, his heart aching for home. He had not shed any tears in years, but he still looked towards Rinalis every morning. Sighing, he set down the slender porcelain mug, wondering what activities the day had in store for him. Though it was midwinter, the southern kingdom of Pharedesia enjoyed mild winters, a brief respite from their sweltering summers. Perhaps Lord Gerald would want to hunt game, or the ladies of the court would be interested in organizing a picnic by the hot springs. He might be afforded the finest luxuries the country had to offer, but his time was dictated by the whims of the Faradizian nobility, and his every move was subtly watched by half a dozen guards, even though he had never given King Jovian the slightest reason to doubt him. As if reading his thoughts, King Jovian himself burst into his room, his rich orange and white robes flaring out behind him. Caspar startled, nearly knocking over his cup. The king never came to Caspar's quarters, rather summoning Caspar when he required an audience with the Rinalis prince. King Jovian, Caspar managed, giving a short bow to the king as he smoothed on his diplomatic grace. I am honored by this unexpected visit. But the smile slid off his face as Caspar approached the king, noting his grimace. Prince Caspar, a messenger arrived this morning from Ranalis. I thought it only right that I be the one to tell you. King Jovian paused. For a wild moment, Caspar hoped that Christopher was sending for him that his clever brother had finally found a way to keep peace with Pharedesia and summon him home. But the question died on his lips as he noted the deep furrow in King Jovian's forehead. Caspar swallowed hard, a sudden knot of fear making him sick. He had to fight the desire to cover his ears. I take it the news is not pleasant, Caspar said, forcing his words to remain calm, even as his mind whirled, trying to figure out what could be so important that the king himself would deliver it. King Jovian briefly looked away, before fixing Casper with an unblinking stare. No, it is most grave. The treaty? Casper could not imagine his brother would do anything to destroy the peace he had worked so hard to create but it was the only matter so important that the king would personally deliver the news. The king shook his head. This is not about the treaty. My family? Caspar's whisper was more of a prayer. He wished the king would correct him, but King Jovian only took another step towards Caspar, confirming his fears. King Christopher was killed a fortnight back. No. "'Christopher!' The floor dropped away from Casper, the rush of emotions making him dizzy. He stumbled to a chair, almost falling into it. King Jovian stared at him for a moment. Casper knew he was breaking protocol to sit while the king stood, but he did not think his legs would work as commanded. King Jovian gave a small nod and took a seat next to Casper, letting the slight go. Casper almost wanted to laugh, that it was mad that he was thinking about etiquette breaches right now. But it was easier than allowing himself to accept the king's words. Anger, confusion, denial, and pain all swarmed inside him, making him want to scream. King Jovian sat by, staring at Casper with his shrewd eyes, as Casper forced himself to regain some control. His brother would not want Casper to show weakness, even now, Casper inhaled deeply. Pretend to be in control, he reminded himself. What happened? Casper's voice was even, if a bit husky. There was an attack by the Fae off the Stigen Road, near the Biowood Forest. King Christopher was traveling back to your capital, but he never made it to Sterling. But... It is too early for Christopher to be heading to Stirling. He never travels to Stirling till spring, Casper argued, as though that would bring his brother back to life. The messenger informed me that the Fae had sent word they wanted to initiate talks of peace. Your brother was heading to Stirling early to commence such talks. King Jovian slowly reached into his pocket. But unfortunately... It was a falsehood on the part of the fairies. They ambushed him. Caspar had never seen a fae, but knew with certainty they all had to be malicious and cunning if they had outwitted and murdered his brilliant brother. Caspar swallowed hard, praying the rumors he had heard about the fae were not true. If the mother was merciful, Christopher died with a sword in his hand, fighting But if the mother was truly merciful, Christopher would still be alive. He had to know. And how did my brother die? King Jovian apprised Casper, seeming to weigh his words carefully. The envoy told us dark magic was used. King Christopher appeared to have choked to death on his own blood. Casper imagined the scene, tasting bile in his throat He needed to take care not to vomit in front of this king. This was found pinned to your brother's body. King Jovian pulled out a folded piece of parchment from his robes and handed it to Casper. Kill ours and we strike back. We do not forget. Shock and fury warred inside Casper as he numbly held the death note in his hand. A few drops of dark rust stained the parchment. My brother's blood. The very thought of the fay's dark magic made him want to burn down the entire biowood forest and all the fairies that lived beyond it. It does not make sense. We didn't kill any fay. The fay are a deceptive folk. They have no qualms of lying if it serves their purpose. King Jovian put his hand on Casper's shoulder, almost a fatherly gesture. But it felt wrong, awkward, and he moved his hand away. Casper crumpled the note in his fist, wishing he was squeezing the neck of the Fae that killed his brother instead. He silently vowed to never show mercy to the Fae. They did not deserve it. Someday, he promised, he would avenge his brother. We will have preparations made for your departure. Caspar looked up from the crumpled parchment to the king, feeling a sudden rush of gratitude. Thank you, your highness, for granting me leave to attend my brother's funeral. It was not the homecoming Caspar wanted, but at least he could say goodbye. He wondered how long the king would allow him to stay in Rinalis. King Jovian shook his head. You misunderstand, Prince Caspar. Your sister will not be taking the crown. Caspar stared blankly at the king, not sure he understood. But Constance is next in line. The fact of it was so ingrained in Caspar that he had never questioned it. His memories of Constance were more faded than those of Christopher. She had stopped writing him years ago. But the pain of being disregarded by his sister would be no reason for him to betray his country. King Jovian had treated Casper well enough, but he would never abandon Ranalis. If you are suggesting I seized the throne, you deeply misunderstand me. King Jovian was clever, and perhaps thought Casper would be a more pliable king, having grown up in Pharedesia. King Jovian's raised eyebrows were the only indication of his surprise, or possibly his irritation, at Casper's accusation. Prince Casper, you are in shock, so I shall forgive any accusations. Princess Constance has decided to decline the crown. You are to take your place as king. All of Casper's diplomatic practice and training abandoned him. You are jesting. King Jovian rose, and this time Casper scrambled to his feet as well, I do not jest, Prince Casper. You are free to return home. The situation from the initial agreement has clearly changed. The hostage exchange, Casper thought. And I assume you shall send my niece back home when you reach Sterling. King Jovian continued. Arrangements will be made for your immediate departure, I imagine you will want to reach Rinalis with time to prepare for your coronation. My coronation? The word did not feel real to Caspar. Coronations were held on the longest day of the year, and the summer solstice was in less than six months. There was no way he could mourn his brother and prepare to become a king in so short a time. What reason did Constance give for passing on the crown? Casper had never imagined anything would happen to his brave and brilliant older brother. But if it had, he assumed his older sister would be crowned queen. She might not care for him, but surely she still cared for their country. Casper recalled her sharp tongue and efficient manner. Constance was no dormouse to scurry away from responsibility. The messenger offered no reason. Perhaps you should ask her yourself when you return home. King Jovian took several steps towards the door. I will give you some time to collect your thoughts and ready for your travels. Right before leaving, he turned back to Casper, And might I be the first to say to you, long live the king. And then King Jovian was gone and Casper was left with his ocean of crashing emotions. Once he was sure he was alone, he allowed himself to cry. Home. King. Casper wondered how he could possibly ever fill the void Christopher had left behind. Chapter One by Chase's den, we are so screwed, I thought, stomping off the Stegen Road and into a lesser-known path in the biowood Forest. I had been so sure of the day's success, certain we could sell our cure-all tonic within the day and have enough coin to feed us for weeks. Admittedly, it was only a simple mixture of water, cinnamon, and molasses, but it transformed into a miracle elixir by the time I was done selling it, we had spent the last of our meager coins on those blasted green glass bottles. I cringed as I thought about how I would break the news to my brothers. When my brother, Jacobi, only eight years old, had asked where I was going this morning, I'd gleefully told him I was off to scout the spring fair in Sterling and find us the perfect spot, promising to be back before midday. The sky was still inky with cold, bright stars and my breath plumed around me as I instructed him to go back to sleep. As I left our tiny encampment, really only a rickety wagon, a crippled old donkey, and the four of us in our thin bedrolls, Jacoby turned over, his soft snores, soon joining those of our brothers, Devin and Finn. Only once I reached the town square, I found another family selling Miracle Tonic, They even demonstrated its efficacy by curing a cripple boy's limp. I was certain the boy was their son and had no such limp. We had planned to perform the same trick with my brother Finn. A city might be interested in one cure-all tonic merchant, but they became immediately suspicious when two set up. One time we had tried to sell our miracle elixir in the same market as another party, selling an almost identical bottle. People demanded a test to show which elixir was real and who was selling them snake oil. Neither tonic cured the sick villagers, and we were run out. My brothers and I barely made it out of that town, and to this day we avoided that village. I kicked at the nearest tree in frustration. The thick birch trunk didn't care, but a sharp pain shooting up my foot had me unleashing an especially colorful string of curses as I hopped up and down in rage. Are you in distress? Whirling around, I started to see an elegant young man leading an equally fine horse. I silently scolded myself for crashing through the woods like a wild boar, and thus not even hearing the approach of this stranger— I was a poor girl alone in the woods and well aware of what some men thought themselves entitled to. Still too far from camp to yell for my brothers, I took a quick step back, but my foot flared with pain, causing me to stumble and fall on my behind. The young man's lip trembled, and I had the feeling he was holding back a smile. I'm fine, I muttered, struggling to my feet. Here, allow me. The young man advanced toward me, his hand outstretched. I was about to push his hand away when I saw the glitter of gold on his finger. I held out my hand, allowing him to pull me up as I gently slid his ring off, dropping it into my pocket before he noticed. Standing, I bit back a cry from the dull pain that still radiated from my foot and appraised my rescuer, He did not look ready to pounce on me the way drunken tavern men tried. But he was also far too richly dressed to be a pilgrim or even a merchant come for the spring fair. And he was not hard on the eyes, with a strong jaw and hair and eyes the color of obsidian. He was young, probably only a few years older than me. But he held himself with the erect posture of the nobility, Of course, the costly blue velvet riding outfit also called out his wealth. The steed he led, a sleek midnight black horse, was adorned with the finest saddle and bit I had ever seen. My daft brain was shocked by the incongruity of seeing a lone nobleman in the midst of the Bayawood, and I spoke before thinking, What are you doing here? His eyebrows shot up. Excuse me? I couldn't tell if he was amused or offended. I only meant that you're clearly highborn, and we don't see many nobles wandering the woods, alone. My surprise made me sound foolish, and I scolded myself. I needed to stop talking and get away from this nobleman before he realized he was one golden ring short. He laughed, a warmth filling his dark eyes, I imagine I am an odd sight in these woods. He looked around at the surrounding trees. But I seemed to have lost my way. I was going for a ride, wishing to experience a bit more freedom. Freedom to wander around the woods? I had to school my face from betraying the mockery I felt well up when I thought about how ridiculous the highborn behaved. All the money in the world and they go and get lost in the wood. That's not how I would enjoy such wealth. But instead, I smiled brightly, dipping into a deep curtsy to feign awe. Well, you are in luck, because I just came off the Stegen Road, and you are not far off. You'll be able to see the road just south of that cluster of elms. I pointed him in the right direction, wanting to ensure his quick departure. Ah, wonderful, thank you. And without another glance, the nobleman jumped onto his horse and set off towards the Stegen Road. I watched till he was out of sight, a grin slowly spreading on my face as I pulled the ring from my pocket. It was heavy, possibly even pure gold. It was a signet ring, the flat surface engraved with three roses, thorns, and vine intertwined, I slipped the ring on my finger, happily thinking that the morning had not been a complete waste after all. Not wanting the nobleman to find me once he discovered my theft, I detoured deeper into the woods, much farther from the Stegen Road. Rumors told that the fay of Magnamel came into the Biowood this close to the border, but I decided baseless gossip was less dangerous than a wealthy man with a fast horse. My return trip to camp would be a longer but safer journey. Halfway to camp, I heard the distant sound of running water. It had to be a stream. Feeling thirsty, I veered toward the sound for a victory drink. The stream was narrow enough to jump over, but still flowed briskly with freshly thawed snow. I knelt by the water, splashing my face and drinking deeply, the cold filling my stomach and radiating through my body. I still think we should kill it, a voice said nearby. It was male, with an irritating whine. And miss our chance for the reward? I don't think so. The second voice was deep and harsh, like grit grinding. We can bring it in dead, Garen. It'd be safer. The crown pays for live fey, not corpses, Aesil. They says they can't question a corpse. I stopped, stunned. Would the Fae leave Magnamel and enter Rinalis? Sterling had flyers posted with the gruesome image of the Fae Queen Maricina and claims that the Fae drank human blood. I had been preoccupied in town, but now I wondered if there really were Fae here in Rinalis. Leave, 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 my common sense shouted, I just want to see it, my curiosity answered back. Crouching low enough to the ground that I could smell the damp moss at my feet, I crept into some bushes and peered through. There was a small clearing in the woods where two men had set up camp. Their various supplies, sleeping rolls and a tiny cooking fire, were off to one side. The whiny man, Asel, was tall and wiry, with a rat-like face. His companion, Garen, was stout and as solid as a tree trunk. While Aesol couldn't stay still, almost hopping from foot to foot in anxiety, Garen stood his ground, firm in his footing and his argument. I couldn't see the fae, but when Aesol gestured to a tree, I figured the fairy must be tied up there. It was just outside my range of sight, and I tiptoed around the clearing to get a better look. I was almost angled right to see the Fae when I snapped a twig underfoot. I froze, fear of detection shooting up my spine. Did you hear that? ASEL hissed. All I've been hearing is your incessant yelling, Garin growled back. No, I think I heard a noise, over here, Aesil said, getting louder as he approached my hiding place. I leaned back against a large oak tree, the only cover I had, and held my breath. We're in the middle of the bloody forest, you idiot, Garin snapped. Probably an animal or something. We're too far from this Tegen road for travelers. Yeah, fine, I guess so, Aesil grumbled as he returned to Garin. I let out the breath I was holding. I should leave, but cautiously. I leaned around the tree and looked out at the clearing. I now had a perfect view. I gasped. I was staring at a fairy. I almost couldn't believe it, but there he was. And he looked nothing like the monsters the flyers warned about. He was stunningly, painfully beautiful. His hair was gold, a true gold, not simply golden blonde and it shone in the morning light. His large almond eyes were deep emerald green, and his skin was pale, almost luminous. He had delicate carved features, looking both elegant and otherworldly. He angrily shook his head, and I saw his ears, which tapered to fine points. The only thing common about him were his clothes, which were travel-worn and dirty. I would have expected the creature to shoot fire out of his mouth, or control the minds of his captors with his dark fey magic. But he didn't look evil. His hands and feet were bound with thick rope, and another rope was tied around his chest. I checked to see if that rope was binding him to the tree, but it was not. He struggled against his bindings without success, while the two men stood over him, arguing. Do you even think we'll get the reward? Aesil asked, pacing in tight circles. More like the guards will think we are working with the Fae. Then what do you suggest? We can't just leave him here, and we could use the reward money. We have to get rid of him. It's the only thing. Aesil immediately responded. Just let me go, and I will be gone. I shall never bother you again, the fairy said. Despite his predicament, he sounded calm. For a moment, I shivered, hearing dark music in his voice. There was a power to his voice, hypnotic and dangerous. I forced myself to pay attention to the men. At the moment, they were the real danger. Don't listen to him, Asel snapped. For a fearful moment, I thought he was talking to me. But I realized he was speaking to his companion, who had taken several steps toward the ferry. Garin shook himself, as if he had been entranced. "'I can make it worth your while to let me go. Is it gold you want? I can give you all the gold you desire.' The fairy's voice was melodic, and I found myself leaning in to hear him better. "'How much gold?' Garin asked. There was suspicion in his voice, but also eager greed.
0: "'Enough
1: to have you living like a king.' He's a liar, Aesl hissed. They all are. He's a fae. They'll say anything. He wouldn't be roaming the woods if he had enough gold to live like a king. A liar? Me? Never. Aesl kicked the fairy in the shin, hard. The fairy let out a cry of pain. I winced, thinking about my own sore foot. And they say humans are such a civilized race, the fairy spat out. Shut your mouth, or you'll get another one. Maybe we should gag him. He might curse us and turn us into toads or something. Garen was smiling, but it wasn't kind. If I could have turned you into a toad, I would certainly have done so by now. Despite his calm tone, I could see fear and anger in the fairy's large eyes. It suddenly seemed very wrong that he would be killed or imprisoned just because he was Faye? I knew I should leave. This was not my problem. And what if the Fey were actually dangerous? I should turn around and pretend I had never seen any of this. But what if the reward amount for a fairy was truly as high as the flyer had claimed? Maybe the amount was not a joke after all. How many months... Could I feed my family if I turned in this fairy? It was insane to even consider it. But a sum that great, and we could actually start life fresh. Maybe even buy a new mill to replace the one we lost in the fire. It could mean the end of a life of petty crimes, just to eat. A thrill ran through me. The same nervous excitement that filled me every time I started a scheme. It felt like a challenge that I decided to accept. I crept over to the small cooking fire. The two men were busy arguing and didn't notice me. Close to their fire was a small bundle of their supplies, a bottle of spirits, and some food. I leaned over and opened the bottle. The alcohol smelled strong and sour, but I wasn't planning on drinking it. I silently poured it on a rolled-up blanket that was leaning on a nearby tree. I laid the blanket on top of the food and supplies and carefully pulled one end of the blanket into the fire. Then I disappeared back into the trees. Back on the other side of the encampment, I crouched near the ferry but stayed hidden. I didn't have to wait long. The alcohol-soaked blanket quickly caught fire. Soon, the whole thing was burning. Asel noticed the fire first. The fire, he squealed, running to the blanket and stomping on it. Garen followed, and soon both men were busy trying to extinguish the flames. Now or never, I thought. I slipped through the trees until I was inches away from the fairy. This close, he was even more beautiful, with a face that looked like it had been carved in glowing marble. I was stunned for a moment, until he spoke. If you are trying to steal me to claim a bounty, be warned. I am very dangerous. His green eyes narrowed. This close, I could see his pupils were not round, but rather cat-like slits. Yeah, you look very dangerous, I whispered not wanting to draw the attention of his captors. And you can come with me, unless you'd like to stay with these kind gentlemen. Without a word, the fairy lifted his wrists up to me. I pulled out the dagger sheathed in my boot, but instead of freeing his wrists, I began to work on the bindings at his ankles. Keeping only his wrists bound was a weak protection, but I didn't see another alternative. Free my hands, he hissed. I ignored him, working on the rope around his ankles. Despite its size, the rope was cheap and poorly made. My blade cut it quickly. Once freed, I silently helped him to his feet. It was apparent he had been bound for a while in the stilted way he rose, wobbling slightly on unsteady feet. It was all the more difficult with his hands still bound together, We have to move, I whispered, not wanting to draw the attention of his captors. He glared at me, raising his bound wrists, but I shook my head. He muttered something under his breath without resisting me while I led him away from the clearing. His legs were too stiff to navigate the bumpy ground, so I tried to shoulder most of his weight as we staggered towards the trees. Hey, what's going on? I snapped my head around, to see Garin staring at me across the clearing. The fire was little more than a smolder. Run! I yelled. Chapter Two I threw my arm around the ferry as we dashed into the trees. I led us in a diagonal path, trying to shake Aisle and Garin from our trail. But we didn't have enough of a head start, and they were closing in, for a guilty moment, I thought about leaving the ferry to save myself, but I kept my grip on him. Get back here, girl, and give us our ferry, Garen yelled. Not wasting the time to turn around, I kept pushing the ferry to move faster. Pox on you, Aesel cried, but he sounded winded. Maybe we could outrun them. Just as we were getting some distance from our attackers, my foot, Stuck in an upturned root, I slammed into the ferry, and we both went crashing to the ground. By all the mother's maids, we were in for it. Untie me, he demanded. I saw our window to escape closing and made my choice. I whipped out my dagger and quickly cut through his bonds. As soon as the rope fell away, the ferry snatched my dagger, his fingers quick and strong, Give that back! I snapped, as he and I both scrambled to our feet. I cursed myself for trusting a fairy even for a second. Before I could grab my dagger, Garin and Aesol were upon us. I wouldn't move if I was you, Aesol said in his nasal whine. He held a knife, a jagged, nasty looking thing, and pointed it at me. I swallowed hard. Don't like it when someone takes what's mine. I don't belong to you, the fairy snarled, but Asel didn't look away from me. His shrewd eyes were cold and calculating. I'd seen that expression in the Faradizian soldiers who burned my village in the Southern War. A shudder of fear squeezed me tight, and I had to force myself to breathe. She's not much to look at, but we could have some fun with her, Garin said, just to my right. I didn't look away from Asel but the fear in me intensified. I tried to stand my ground, but I could feel myself trembling. Aysel laughed, a cackling sound. Struggling to buy time, I slowly raised my arms in the air, hoping they weren't shaking too much. Look, gentlemen, I think there has been some sort of misunderstanding. This is my brother. I gave a little laugh, but it sounded hollow. That thing isn't even human. Do you take us for fools? Aisle asked. Actually, I kind of do, I said, lunging toward Aisle. I grabbed the wrist of his hand holding the knife and shoved it away. Most crooks don't expect their victims to attack and aren't ready for it. Luckily, Aisle was like that. Surprised, he stumbled backward as I pushed him to the ground. He got in one swipe of his knife before he tumbled down, My foot gave a swift kick to his groin. When he yelped in pain, I jumped on him and punched him once in the face. A sharp crack sounded as blood began to pour from his nose. Then I was hurled off my feet and thrown backward, hitting the ground with a crunch that sent my head spinning. I looked up to see Garen almost on top of me. Something whizzed past, and I saw my dagger embedded in Garen's shoulder. I turned to look at the fairy, but he was already running toward Aesil. Garin growled in pain, and Red bloomed from the wound. For a moment, he looked like he was trying to decide if he wanted to attack the fairy or me. But he started toward me again. The fairy left Aesil and darted out behind Garin. He pressed at the knife wound. Garin yelled in pain and surprise. Then the fairy wrapped his bloody slender fingers around the large man's neck. Sange. I didn't understand what the fairy had said, but Garin looked dazed. He took a few unsteady steps and stopped. He started clawing at his throat as though he couldn't breathe, even though the fairy was no longer touching him. Frothy blood started to form at his mouth and run out his nose. He dug his nails into his neck, scratching it, so more blood was running down his shirt, as though he could remove whatever force was choking him. But it did no good. He dropped to the ground. I stared at Garin, feeling both relief and horror as blood continued to pour out of his mouth and nose. And soon, streams of dark blood ran from his eyes and ears, staining his blotchy face crimson. After a few minutes, the large man stopped struggling. He twitched a few times, and his eyes went glassy. The fairy looked at me, but I couldn't read his expression. What did you do? I was too stunned to move, grateful he took out Garin, but alarmed at the new danger facing me. Stopped him. Stopped his blood, the fairy said, speaking slowly as though I did not understand what death looked like. You killed him, I said, stating the obvious. Were the fae stories true? Would the fairy start drinking Garen's blood or eat his heart? Would you rather I had let him kill us? Are you going to kill me? I asked, staring into his emerald cat eyes. I wanted to look away, see what happened to Asel if he were still a threat. I wondered if the fairy had used the same dark magic on him. I wanted to run far away from here, from this dangerous creature, but I was too afraid to move. I cursed myself for getting involved. You are human, he said it as if it was an insult. But you did free me. Now he sounded resentful. Despite his words, I did not feel relieved. He had not actually said he wouldn't kill me. Blood dripped from his hands. I spared a quick glance to ASEL who was unmoving, no longer moaning in pain. Did you kill him too? Yes. I had to fight a sudden urge to be sick. My blade was no longer sticking out of Garen's shoulder, but I didn't want to go see where it had fallen. There was dark blood covering the man's shirt, though how much was blood from the shoulder wound and how much was blood he had choked up, I couldn't tell. Asel's face wasn't much to look at, either. I focused again on the fairy, the real danger. Are you upset? They might have also been humans, but they meant me great harm. And you, too. No, not upset, I lied. I wasn't upset they were dead, but I was upset that I let myself get into a situation where I was alone with a monster who could kill just by touch, I owe you for my rescue, the fairy said, taking a step toward me. Don't come near me. I jumped backward, desperately wanting to get away from this creature. I felt a sudden, searing pain in my right leg, where Asel's blade had grazed me. I'd hardly felt it in the heat of the struggle, but the hot flash of pain made me realize it was far more serious. I inhaled sharply, but refused to look away from the fairy. You're hurt. I can take care of that, he said, taking another step toward me. I saw a glint of steel and realized he had taken my blade from Garen's shoulder. No, I yelled, unable to conceal the terror in my voice. Don't touch me. I tried to take another step, but my right leg buckled and fiery pain shot up my leg. I gasped and collapsed. My leg was soaked in blood. I didn't hear the fairy approach, but suddenly he was kneeling next to me, concern on his beautiful face. I was surprised at how quickly he moved. You've been stabbed. Let me see your leg. He gently pulled the fabric of my trousers up, holding my dagger in his other hand. The fabric was drenched in blood. My blood? The cut was much deeper than I'd initially thought. I stiffened at his touch but was trapped, sure I would start choking blood the moment he touched me. He must have sensed my anxiety, because he said, I won't hurt you. He moved carefully, as though I were a wild animal he didn't want to frighten. His fingers were cool on my skin, his touch light. After a moment, I realized I was not choking. I wanted to laugh or cry, feeling relieved but still terrified. I wondered if this creature would change his mind. His fingers were sticky with blood. Do not pass out, I commanded myself. I gritted my teeth and forced myself to focus on breathing. I closed my eyes and took deep gulps of air. Suddenly, the fairy stood up. I started to tear at my trousers, knowing I would need to create a tourniquet to stop the blood. The fairy loomed over me. For a moment, I thought it was my end. I struggled, trying to stand, the pain and blood loss making black spots appear in front of my eyes. I knew I was no match for the deadly fay. He suddenly turned the dagger on himself, slicing a shallow cut on his hand. A shimmering, viscous liquid oozed out. It was a pale gold, almost silver. With a start, I realized that It was his blood. My surprise had me rooted to the spot, and before I realized what was happening, the fairy had knelt down, pressing his bloody palm to the cut on my leg. His touch felt icy and numbed the fiery feeling that had been in my calf. The throbbing eased, and soon I couldn't feel anything. The fairy gently removed his hand and I forced myself to look down and examine my leg. It was still bloody, but no longer bleeding. Instead, a puckered pink line ran across my skin, like that of a fresh scar. The golden fey blood had been absorbed into the wound, and all I saw was a gentle glow to my skin. I tentatively touched the scar. It was tender, but without pain. How? I asked, bewildered. Fae blood heals. At least it does for those with the gift to use it. He smiled, the first time I had seen him do so. He looked pale and tired, but the smile lit up his face, making him look positively radiant, even if his pearly white teeth were too sharp and his eyes had a strange glow. A film of sweat gleamed on his forehead, and I wondered what this magic had cost him. Thank you, I said, unsure what else to say. Even sweating and disheveled from our escape and fight, he looked as lovely and deadly as the paintings of angels I had seen in our church when I was young. Though lean, he was well-muscled and stronger than he appeared. His emerald eyes assessed me intently, but I had no idea what he was thinking I felt suddenly and ridiculously self-conscious of my dirty, straw-blonde hair and dull brown eyes. I chided myself, knowing this creature wouldn't care what I looked like. I'd be lucky if he let me live. But why heal me if he meant to kill me? The childhood stories I had heard in my village of demonic fae ran through my head, stories of creatures that were so beautiful They lured unsuspecting villagers into a false sense of trust, and then used their dark magic to torture and enslave them. Though he had saved my life, just as surely as I had saved his. But I still didn't trust him. And then I remembered other stories, ones my father used to tell us about the Fae. In them, the Fae were dangerous, but not evil, They just wanted the right to live their lives in peace. In an unusual story, a fairy prince had even fallen in love with a human girl. My father was the only one in our village to tell such stories about the fae. But maybe he was right. I wanted to say something, ask this fairy why he was in Stirling when fairies were forbidden to enter the kingdom of Rinalis. Instead, I said, you should leave. Rinalis doesn't allow Fay within its borders. I owe you for my life, or at least my freedom, the fairy said slowly, as though each word weighed on him. I wasn't going to free you. The fairy didn't look surprised. But you did. I don't want anything from you. I just wanted this encounter to be over. Part of me wanted to stay with this fairy, as if his beauty was so intense, I was intoxicated by it. But the rational side of me wanted this boy, no, not a boy, a deadly fairy, to go away. I would be far safer away from this creature. No amount of gold was worth staying with a creature that could kill by touch. You are a strange human, almost decent, you must have met some awful humans, if I'm to be considered decent. Look, Fay, uh, sir, you know, I don't know what to call you. Pell, the fairy said, and he gave me a small smile and a nod. I tried not to think of how lovely his face looked when he smiled. His smile was striking and a bit unsettling with his pointed teeth. Pell, I'm Eleonora Molnar. Call me Nor. I put out my hand to shake his. He just looked at my hand, so I withdrew it. You should probably stay away from all humans. You aren't going to try to turn me in for a ransom? Pell asked. He was smiling again, and I realized he was mocking me. Not after what you did to the last people who tried to do that. You are indeed an odd human. Pell's look was appraising, and I felt like I was being examined. Just one with better survival instincts. We stood there for a minute, neither of us speaking, before I broke the silence. What are you doing out here? Pell looked away at first, then turned to stare at me with those sparkling green eyes. Passing through before I could ask him where he was going, he yanked at a tear on his tunic. He pulled a thread loose and drew it out, unraveling a small patch of his shirt as he wound the thread around his hand. Satisfied, he ran the thread through his hand, turning the dull thread a copper as our mixed blood soaked on it. He then began to twist the thread back and forth between his fingers. After a while, the thread no longer looked copper, but glittered in the afternoon sun. I stared, transfixed, at this new magic. In his hands was now a length of delicately spun gold thread. Is that spun gold, a specialty of mine? He gave a pointed glance at my hand. I've heard humans are quite fond of gold. I glanced at my hand, seeing the noble signet ring glinting on my finger. I had completely forgotten I was wearing it. Without thinking, I reached out for the thread, and he dropped it in my hand. It was not simply a golden-colored thread, but an actual thread of gold. I pulled at its end and saw a spidery-thin wisp of golden strands. How? I asked, mesmerized by the gold, I'd never seen anything like it. I glanced at his shirt, but it was still the color of undyed wool. Trade secret. I should have counted my blessings and left right then. Between the ring and the thread, I possessed more wealth than my family had ever seen, even before the Southern War. But he had so easily transformed wool to gold. I decided to see if I could goad him into making some more for me. One thread? That's the value of your life? I asked, quirking up an eyebrow. I waited expectantly, knowing I was being too greedy, but unable to stop myself. After all, I did just save you from some terrible fate that probably involved a dungeon, or worse. Pell fixed me with an unreadable expression, his cat eyes staring at me. Something dangerous crossed his face, and his lips curled up in a feral smile, one that instantly reminded me what sort of creature I was dealing with. I immediately regretted provoking this fay and tried to take a step back, but Pell was so much faster than I. He was on me in a moment, his slender fingers tight around my wrist. I didn't mean- I started, panic rising within me. I know not if you are merely foolish, greedy, or both. But you shall have your wish, human, he said, wrapping a loop of the thread around my wrist, tying it off before pulling free the rest of the thread, which he let drop into my hand as he released me. I took several shaky steps back, but he made no further move towards me. I looked down at my wrist, the loop of golden thread forming a delicate bracelet. I don't understand. He laughed, a sweet, Musical sound that played at mischief. You asked for more, Nor, so there it is. There is what? How you can call on me for the debt I owe you. Put a drop of your blood on the thread that encircles your wrist. That will summon me, and I will come and repay my debt. Wait, my blood? That's wrong. I had to repress a shudder. I yanked at the golden loop around my wrist, desperate to pull the thread off. Come to think of it, I am actually perfectly grateful to have just the golden thread. I work in blood magic. Fay blood heals and human blood. Well, that has many uses. He gestured to the two dead thugs. So you didn't just kill them by touching them? I asked, startled. No. I needed blood, their blood, he paused before adding, in order to stop their blood. Well, I now see why so many people think Fae are scary demons, I said, my fingers still fumbling with the thread on my wrist. Do I look like a scary demon? He stared at me intently. I looked up into his beautiful emerald eyes, green as fields on a summer's day. You are beautiful, I said without thinking, then blushed deeply. Was I mooning over some deadly fay? But aren't the most dangerous creatures the beautiful ones? They usually are. He looked like he wanted to say more, but decided against it. This won't come off. The thread was so thin, I couldn't understand why I was unable to yank it off my wrist. I bit it, but it held fast. Ah, gold you have, but can never spend. He smiled and winked. Eleonora Molnar, you should know that all fairy magic comes at a price. Consider yourself lucky that the trick I played on you was so small. With that, he carefully untied the rope that was secured around his chest. As he adjusted his cloak, I realized the purpose of the rope. He had wings. I gaped at him, not having the words to say anything. His large wings were dragonfly thin and translucent, their opalescent surface shimmering in the afternoon light. Asel and Garin must have tied the rope around him to prevent him from flying away. Fully outstretched, his wings were around three feet in both directions they seemed too delicate to lift him but he flapped them a few times rainbows splitting the air and then he took off easily navigating through the tree branches and up into the sky all without saying a word or even turning back to me I watched him flying high into the air until he was little more than a speck against the clouds I left the bodies where they were No one would care if two criminals had been killed in the woods. I briefly considered saying a quick prayer to the mother for them, as the only human witness to their deaths. But remembering how they had wanted to have some fun with me, I decided against it. I carefully wound the rest of the golden thread into a small spool and headed back to my camp. The entire time, I picked at my new bracelet, but it held fast. Chapter 3 Stopping by the stream, I washed most of the blood from my hands and leg, but there wasn't much I could do about the bloodstain on my pants. I fiddled again with the bracelet, but it held firm. I contented myself, knowing that between the ring and the rest of the gold thread, secured in my pocket, there was plenty for us, till I figured out how to remove Pell's trick. Pushing down my sleeve, I made my way back to camp. Nor, Jacoby yelled, spotting me first. He ran over, slamming into me with a massive hug. I swung my little brother around a few times, again grateful that the wound on my leg had healed. I set him down. You're back. Of course I'm back, you little nut, I said patting his head. Why were you gone so long? Devin asked, giving me a stern look. Even though he was only two years older than me, he had an annoying habit of trying to act like a parent. Because I was scouting the city. Did you get us something to eat? Finn asked, pausing from packing up our meager supplies. At 13, he was a sapling of a boy, always hungry and thin as a beanpole. Sorry, we didn't have enough coin. I tried not to wince, remembering the fake crippled boy. Finn looked painfully disappointed, but didn't say anything. But I'm hungry, Jacoby whined, and I had to look away from the forlorn expression on his small face. And that took all morning. That's not like you, Nor. Sterling is a big city, Devon. I didn't know exactly why, but I didn't want to tell my brothers about Pell. I tried to convince myself that they would just worry too much. Nor, your leg, Finn cried, seeing my bloody pants. Chase's den, I thought, trying to think of some plausible excuse. Finn reached out to examine my pants. Jacoby and Devin were also staring at the bloodstain. Jacoby's eyes were wide, filled with fear. I worried he'd start crying. It's nothing, I insisted. But no one believed me. I batted Finn's hand away when he tried to touch my pants. What happened, sister? He asked, voice high with anxiety. I'm not hurt. It's not even my blood. My three brothers looked at me skeptically. It's not, I insisted, desperately trying to think of some sort of lie to appease them, I quickly decided a half-truth would serve me best. I was attacked, on my way back to camp. Who hurt you? Devon asked. My older brother looked ready to track my attacker and murder him. Too late for that. They're long gone, I lied, trying to ease the tension. And this is their blood, not mine, so no need to fuss over me. What happened, Nor? Devon asked still using his serious parent voice. I was, well, I... Nervously, I fished around in my pockets, fingering the signet ring, as my hand closed on the spool of golden thread. Recalling the young noble in the woods, I decided to alter the truth of the morning a bit. I picked the wrong pocket. This man caught me, and we had a bit of a fight. I had to use my dagger, But he came out of it far worse than me. And look what I got for my trouble. I pulled out the golden thread, displaying that and the ring. They shone in the sun, and my brothers came in close to see my new treasures. Nor, is that gold? Devon asked, stepping to me. His eyes were entranced by my sparkling prizes. Yes, so pretty, Jacoby said in awe, can we buy sweets? If we're careful, this much gold could last us months, maybe even a year. Devin was already making the calculations in his head. We can buy sweets and food and new clothes, I added, catching my brother's excitement. We won't even need to sell elixir today, Finn said, staring at the gold which I should mention is no longer a possibility. I let them know about the family already selling Miracle Tonic. All the extra luck, then, that you found gold, Devin said. With this much money, we could replace the wagon and get new supplies for whatever job we want to do next. Get some fresh straw for Stony. Something about replenishing our supplies stuck with me. Something about the straw... And buy sweets, Jacobi repeated, making sure his request wasn't forgotten. And actually, have some money put aside for leaner times, Finn added, always practical. The fragments came together like pieces of a puzzle, and I realized I had our next plan. I got it, I practically yelled, halting my brother's enthusiastic chatter. We're not going to sell the gold, not yet anyway. Three sets of brown eyes looked at me as though I had lost my mind. I have an idea, one that will let us fill our pockets and keep the gold. What are you talking about, Nor? Finn asked, his tone as wary as his look. I have a new plan for the market fair. We're going to need straw, a whole lot of straw. I quickly explained the plan excitement building within me as I mapped out details. The familiar rush of nerves and anticipation that came with every new job flowed through me. It was a feeling I craved, one that made me feel alive. I demonstrated what I would do with the gold thread, slipping it seamlessly up my sleeve. That's a terrible plan. My next words died on my lips as I looked into Finn's hard face He usually supported my schemes, but now crossed his arms, a disapproving frown pulling down his thin lips. What? I asked, stunned and hurt. It's reckless, Noor. Sometimes you go too far, and you are putting us in danger for no reason. We already have plenty of gold now. You sound like Devon, I countered. I think this is a fine plan, so leave me out of this. Devin said, stepping away from us. Sorry, Devin, I muttered, still glaring at Finn. Come on, Jacoby, let's pack up camp while Nor and Finn finish their spitting match. As Devin pulled Jacoby away to gather up our things, I could hear my little brother asking why we were fighting. Devin said something about us having the temperament of stray cats. Low enough that my other brothers wouldn't hear, I stepped towards Finn and said, seriously Finn, what is the matter? It is a good plan. It's not a terrible plan, Finn said, but then stalled, as though searching for the right words. Though only 13, he had always been a studious boy, probably the smartest of all of us, at least when it came to book knowledge. Though our father was a simple miller, He had known how to read and write, something he had taught us. We had even owned several large books, mostly about medicinal plants and herbs, and Finn had read every one several times. Nor, your story doesn't make sense, his voice as low as my own. What do you mean? I could not quite meet his eyes. He was far too good at reading people. You haven't gotten caught picking a pocket for years. You're too good. I got lazy, it happens, I said, still looking away. If anyone could call out my lie, it would be Finn. Let's get to work. Besides, does it even matter how I got the gold? The important thing is that we are going to be rich. Fine, he said, throwing up his hands in defeat. I could tell he didn't believe my story, but I didn't say anything. We'll go along with your plan, because we always go along with your plans. But I don't like being lied to. I tried to laugh, as though such deception was a jest, but it stuck in my throat. I considered telling Finn the truth, but instead turned and began to pack up my meager supplies. I deserved to keep the memory of Pell to myself. I had so little that was only mine. It was well past dark when the four of us headed to some of the farms on the outskirts of Stirling. The farms were about an hour's hike from our camp in the Biowood Forest. Far enough outside Stirling. they were not enclosed within the city walls. Hopefully, the farms would have barns full of straw each of us carried a burlap sack. Devin even had two. Do you think this will really work? Devin asked as we approached the first farm, little more than glowing windows in the distance. Of course, I said. It has to, I thought. I'll race you there, Jacobi challenged us as we got closer. I could make out a large dark barn a good distance away from the warmly lit farmhouse, I don't know, little brother. My legs are so much longer than yours. It wouldn't be fair, Finn said. And despite the dark, I could hear the smile. At least his temper had cooled. Yeah, but I'm super fast, like really, really fast. Then you're on. And before Devin or I could say anything, my two younger brothers sprinted toward the barn. Do you think that's safe? Devon asked, staring after our brothers. Don't worry, the barn is far from the house. No one will see them, I reassured him. As I watched Jacoby and Finn, I grinned. But maybe we should hurry up. I'll race you. I don't think so. Afraid you'll lose, big brother? That's not why, Devon started but I took off running after Finn and Jacoby. suddenly feeling giddy. I glanced back once, warmed that Devin was playing along and running, trying to catch up. He was usually faster than me, so I pushed myself hard, focusing only on my brothers and the approaching barn. As I got close, I slowed, seeing Finn and Jacoby had reached the barn and were playfully throwing straw at each other. The barn smelled of clean straw and warm animals. And I noted two horses in stalls. They did not seem to care about us intruding in their barn. You lost, I won, you lost, I won, Jacoby sang in triumph. But you're the one covered in straw, Finn countered and dumped a heap of straw on Jacoby's head. Jacoby peeked his head out of the straw wayward stalks clinging to his hair, making his blond hair even more unruly than usual. There was a mischievous look in his eye before he retaliated by pulling out Finn's legs, forcing him to fall into the straw. They were both laughing, and I couldn't help but join in. Even Devon smiled to see such a ridiculous sight. For a moment, it felt like old times, my brothers just being silly children. I wished we had more times like that. All right, you demons, let's get to work, Devin finally said, opening one of his sacks and heaping straw into it. Make sure to spread the straw around, I added, so it doesn't look so obvious that we took some. I filled my sack quickly and then took a moment to practice the sleight of hand I would use to create the illusion of turning the straw into gold. The rough straw kept catching on my sleeve when I tried to palm it. You're messing it up, Finn complained, still holding his grudge from earlier. I shot my brother a sour look before grabbing a handful of straw and flinging it at him. Most of it missed, but a few stalks settled on his head. Just saying how I see it, Finn retorted. Not helping. You need something to distract people. Finn's voice trailed off as he started exploring the barn. I tried to ignore him, but my too observant brother was right. How about this, Finn called. He had climbed onto the second story of the barn. What are you doing up there? I asked, making my way up a roughly carved ladder. Look, Nor, he said proudly gesturing to a piece of furniture in the corner. I stepped closer to see what he was pointing at. The moonlight cast a dull glow on a rickety hoop of wood. A spinning wheel? Exactly, you can spin the straw into gold. It will give you a reason to hunch over, and you can use it to block people's view while you palm the straw. My brother was beaming. I looked closely at the spinning wheel. It was a relic, warped and cracked wood. But a gentle push on the wheel, and it spun. It was a strange idea, but not a bad one. Somehow, it felt fitting with such an outlandish plan. Turning to Finn, I smiled, especially happy to have Finn aiding my plan instead of fighting it. You might just be brilliant, little brother. I know. Devon helped us take the spinning wheel down. Finn and I carried it between us, each with bags of straw in our other hands. Devon and Jacoby carried the rest as we made our way back to camp. I felt ignited even as we sweated the long trek back. I lay in my sleeping roll late into the night, staring up at the trees and the sky. The night was lit with an almost full moon and dotted with sparkling stars. I traced my finger over the imprinted crest on the signet ring and briefly recalled the handsome young nobleman. Before slipping my finger further down my wrist, feeling the gold thread bracelet, it was oddly warm. I gently tugged at it, but as Pell had said, it stayed coiled around my wrist Eventually, my eyes closed, and I dreamt of strange, graceful boys with sparkling emerald cat eyes and ropes of shimmering gold. Rise and shine, I called out. The morning was crisp, and dawn's early light was just shining above the trees. I had already been up for an hour, practicing palming the straw with the aid of the spinning wheel. Nor... I'm hungry, Jacobi said, already wide awake. I know, and tonight we'll eat like kings. How about you be a good boy and wake your brothers? It's gonna be hard, Jacobi said, with all the seriousness an eight year old could muster. They sleep like rocks. Then you should probably go jump on them, I encouraged as I began putting together a simple breakfast with our meager rations. I heated up water to make a thin gruel, as Jacoby pounced on one brother and then the next. Would a please wake up, dear brother of mine, kill you? Finn grumbled, as Jacoby moved on to his next victim. It's not his fault you lot are so difficult to rouse in the mornings, I said, laughing. Aloysia's sake! Devin swore. Good morning, I called out to Jacoby's latest conquest. I blame you for teaching him to do that, Devin said as he yawned. When my brothers were up, I served our small breakfast and reviewed the plan again with them. My nerves were alight with the anticipation of a job, and I practiced palming the gold thread. We finished packing the straw into the wagon, hitched up stony, and took to the road. The early hours were still fresh with dawn, and the coolness was invigorating. I inhaled the woody smell of pine, mixed with that of the fresh straw, as we made our way down the Stegen Road. There are so many people, Jacoby said, as we reached the gates of Stirling. Merchants, entertainers, and pilgrims were still making their way to Stirling for the spring fair, I briefly wondered if Pell were anywhere around, but was quickly consumed by thoughts of the job ahead. Occasionally, we saw black ribbons tied to gates or public buildings, old memorials for the late King Christopher. The ribbons were weather-worn, more tattered brown strips of fabric than dignified memorial tokens. But I guessed no one wanted to be seen taking down a tribute to our late king, Not that I cared. From my experience, the ruling class did little more than burden the rest of us. After all, it was kings who had started the Southern War. I would never accept that my parents and sister had died for royal disputes. I pulled off one of the ribbons and let it flutter to the ground. Finn, you go on ahead as lookout. Stay somewhere you can't be seen with us, but not too far off in case there's trouble. Jacoby, you'll stay with us and arrange the straw when we set up. With you, sister, there is always trouble. Finn patted me good-naturedly on the back. Very funny. When the guards come, I'll be sure to point them in your direction. Till dinner, we all said. It was a motto in our family, around from simpler days, when our mother would let us play till dinner, Now it was our slogan that by dinner we would be back together. Devin, you all right? Yeah, he said, keeping his focus on the road ahead. We've just never done a job like this before. Makes me nervous, he added in a hushed voice so as not to be overheard. Every job we do was new the first time, I said, to reassure him. Before a job, especially a new one, Devon got anxious, I got excited. Of course, but I promised Rilla I'd look out for you all, right after mother died and right before she, well, it isn't easy when we try something new. I gave Devin's arm a comforting squeeze. Rilla had been our older sister, taking charge of us after our parents died in the war. Willowy and delicate, she hadn't lasted much longer succumbing to a terrible cough that shook her whole body. I forced myself to push away the memories. Don't worry, big brother, we'll be fine. Devin smiled, but the furrow in his brow never left. We walked the rest of the way in silence, making sure the straw didn't spill out of the wagon. As we passed through the large iron gates into the city of Sterling, a new flood of anticipation and nerves washed over me. It's showtime, I whispered to my brothers.
0: That Pell is one deadly fairy. I'm not sure if it's the best idea for Nor to use Pell's gold to con villagers. Tune in to the next episode of Goldspun to see how our scheme will play out. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you! Also, check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms, and our background episodes where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.